while still in his 30s, David, he had established himself as the preeminent political and military leader of the, of the Middle East. And, and we, it's very clear, you can look at his life and you can see that the favor of God rested on, da on David. And he, these, the, he had just one victory after another after another. But, you know, seasons of undiluted success, they're really wonderful. Have you, ever had those, you ever had one of those stretches where it just seemed like everything went right? Maybe it was 30 minutes, but everything went right. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Some of you are like, you know, I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen that. But we've all had those times when we just kind of be on, it seems like we're on a good roll and things are happening, good things. Well, a, a, a lot of seasons of undiluted success, that's wonderful, but they can also be dangerous. Uh, anyone who had achieved all that David had, had achieved since he was a boy, the problem that, the, that he, you're going to struggle with is going to be pride. Because it seemed like everything David touched turned to gold. Everything he tried, he was good at. Everything that he, that he attempted, you know, he had the Lord's favor. I mean, we talked a little bit last week how, how, you know, where did he learn military strategy? Where did he learn tactics? Because he came from a, a small tribe, a, 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 very, a very plain, uh, uh, painfully ordinary family. And uh, where did, where did, he didn't have the chance to learn these things. Where did he learn to play the lyre? I mean, he's just out in the wilderness one day, finds an old beat-up guitar and says, I think I can play this, and he can. Where, where did he learn to write poetry? Uh, and he, he was, he, everything he tried, everything he touched was gold. And that's a wonderful thing, but it's also a very dangerous place to be because it's easy when you begin to have victory after victory after victory, it's easy to get to a place where somehow you think that you did it. When the reality is, all that happened was God working on his behalf. You know, and, it's, and highly successful leaders like David, especially young ones, can begin to feel unbreakable. The problem, of course, is that no one is unbreakable. Even David. No one is unbreakable. David was never broken in battle, but the irony of ironies, what finally broke him, we're going to see tonight, was not going into battle. At an early age, we, we've said already, David had great success. In his 20s and 30s, he was, he was practically a superhero in, in Israel. I and mean, he was famous. He was the most powerful military man in the region. However, his pride would become his, his kryptonite. If he was Superman, his kryptonite was his pride. And, and God was trying to warn him about it before it was too late. When, when David said that he wanted to build a temple, God told him, we talked about this last week, he told him, he said, I raised you up. I gave you victory over your enemies. I scattered your enemies before you. I did this, not you. And he said, you have wealth and power and good looks. You can write music and poetry. And if you build the temple, I don't think I can even save you. I need to hold you in check. It was going to be too much victory, too much for one man to handle. But apparently David, David didn't quite get it. He didn't recognize his undealt with pride um, that, that one day would, would wreak havoc on his tomorrow. In the end, he wasn't prepared for what was about to loom up out of the swamp to get him he wasn't prepared at all and here's the, here's a principle something's really important for all of us to remember in every phase of one's life one plants seeds of success or failure for the next phase 
What you're doing today, the way you live your life today, the decisions you make today are going to go a long way to determining your success or your failure tomorrow or the next day or next month or next year or even 10 years down the road. What we do today matters. What David did today on, on that day matters. And, and what, what, what you learn today about yourself, about life and discipline and hope and truth and character and God will affect your tomorrow more than you can even begin to realize. And the blemishes that we paint over. You know, how many of you know we like to paint over our own blemishes? That we, we like to, to plaster over our cracks. I've used the phrase, the, the terminology, the word picture here multiple times. We like to wear our masks, don't we? You know, and, 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 and those things, the, the blemishes we paint over, the cracks that we, that we plaster over, the masks that we wear, the shortcuts that we take so that we never really have to deal with the issue at hand, all have the capacity to deeply wound our future. In other words, the problems that are in our heart that we either ignore or that we are blind to today can sabotage even what God wants to do in our lives tomorrow. So we need to pay attention to that. And, and I've said before, pride is one of the most insidious of all the sins because pride by its very nature is, is very difficult for us to see in ourselves. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I know you probably thought about it since I've said it, but, but I mean, just think about the, the fact that if you have pride in your heart, then your pride, if you begin to examine your life and say, how am I doing? Your pride will lie to you and say, I'm doing fine. If you begin to examine your life and say, do I have pride in my heart? Your pride will begin to tell you, no, of course you don't have pride. And, and you'll become proud of the fact that you don't have pride, you know? It's like humble is my middle name and I'm proud of it, you know, that kind of thing. It's just, it's a very, very insidious sin. And, and, and so that was what was happening with David. If, and if there was ever a single defining moment that illustrates perfectly the complexities of King David, it is the story of Bathsheba, the temptation, the sin, the fallout, the repentance. I mean, you have to ask yourself, how could... A, a man that, that is, the Bible describes that it says, how could a man after God's own heart commit adultery and murder and high-level governmental conspiracy and corruption? How can that happen? David's like the little girl in Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem. I don't know if you've ever heard this poem. It's one of my favorite little poems. It says this, there was a little girl and she had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very, very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. Isn't that a great little poem? The story of Bathsheba, that's David. That's David right there. The story of Bathsheba can't be explained away. Here's the thing. We've talked about, we've talked about, you know, trying to impose 21st century morals and values and Christian morals and values on um, a man that was living uh, in a primitive age at the very end of the Bronze Age, you know, and so when you look at military uh, tactics and the things that they did and the brutal nature of war in those days, you can't, 
You can't put 21st century values on that because the culture was so different. But the problem with the story of Bathsheba is you cannot explain away uh, his sin uh, because of culture uh, by, by saying he was a chieftain of a warlord in a, on the cusp of the, of the Bronze Age. The culture of the era in which he lived, that helps us deal with David's polygamy and military brutality, but adultery and the murder of a friend in order to cover up, that's wrong in any culture. So you can't explain it away. They are all about sin. And in the middle of season of his life, because we've broken it down, we've talked about the morning of David's life where we're on the afternoon in David's life, and pretty soon we'll be doing the evening of his life. But in the, in the middle season of his, of his life, the Bathsheba episode reveals both the darkest valleys of David's journey, and it also shows us in his response to it uh, down the road the, the, what makes him a man after God's own heart. There's a man, uh, uh, Johann Wolfgang, uh, Wolfgang van Gogh wrote this. He said, a good man in his darkest aberration of the right path is conscious still. In other words, even when a person is, when a person knows a good man, a man that's after God's own heart, this is David, even when he's doing the worst thing that he has ever done in his life, he is still aware of what the right thing is to do. He's not lost, that's not lost on him. And David, he was about to step onto a dark and destructive path. And, and be, because at the end, later, later than he should have, David chose the right path, but it took him a while to get there. And I want you to, to look at 2 Samuel 11. We're not reading a lot of scripture tonight just to save some time, but 2 Samuel 11 starts with a sentence that seems very innocuous. But I want you to understand this. Nothing in Scripture is wasted. Uh, not one syllable is there by accident. And this is what it starts off with. 2 Samuel 11.1 1 says this. This is from the New Living Translation. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, then at the end of the verse it says, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And it's with those words that David's life begins to unravel. That, that simple sentence means that the king is not where he's supposed to be, and that was the open door for this terrible disaster in his life. This was, the, this was the first time in David's career that he had not personally led the army. With his, with his, uh, when his band of men uh, raided out of, out of uh, uh, Adullam and Ziklag, David led the way. When the Israelite army extended the nation's borders, by driving out the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Amalekites and all those other ites, David was, was at least at minimum, he's at the base camp, <clears throat> excuse me, he was at the base camp and, and perhaps even at the front while fighting. But here now, when the Israelite military might was at its peak, the nation has never been stronger, the, 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 the threat has never been, been uh, lower <clears throat> at this point in time. The armies are out. It says in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David remained behind in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know, maybe Joab, his general, maybe David's other advisors, maybe they came to him and said, David, 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 right now Israel is David and David is Israel if you get killed in battle, we're in big trouble. So please, please just stay here in, in Jerusalem. 
You know, maybe they said that. Maybe they were genuinely concerned for him and he was genuinely honoring the wishes of, of his advisors and generals. We don't know what happened. We don't know why he said, but even if that happened, David was still king. And so the final decision was his and his alone. If he had wanted to lead his army out, out, out of Jerusalem, there's nobody that could have stopped him. And David was... By, by no means too old for battle at this point in his life. It wasn't like he had reached the point in his, in his life like me where he's like, I'm going to go fight a battle. I'm going to sit here. <laughs> you know, you get to a point where your brain, your brain writes checks that your body can't cash. And David wasn't at that place yet. Uh, David was still in his 30s. He was not a decrepit old man, you know, that was more figurehead than warrior. He was a young and, and virile leader, too young to retire and too easily bored. And I'm telling you this, when men get bored, that's a dangerous place. Can anybody say amen? Okay. <laughs> Even, even one man's agreeing with that. I thought I'd get a little heartier amen from the ladies in the room. Um, but, I, I, you know, anyway, for whatever reason, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Maybe he, maybe he just longed for a little peace. Maybe he had been, you know, he had been in one battle after another his whole life, and he had been personally responsible for hundreds of deaths and and there were, there were tens of thousands of others that had fallen to his armies. And perhaps David was just weary of all the bloodshed. Maybe he was just tired of all that and just said, I just, you know, you guys go do what needs to be done. I just don't want to have to do that anymore. I mean, after all, he was king. And he, it had been easy for him to say, man, I just, I deserve some R&R. Israel was expanding. The ark was in Jerusalem. He had accomplished so much and, and life was good for the king who used to sleep in caves and hide and run from King Saul. And for whatever reason, he was not with his army and he found himself with an abundance of downtime. Now here's the, the thing. Just because David didn't have a war on which to expend his energy, that did not mean he did not have energy that needed to be expended. Can I tell you this? Downtime is not all that it's cracked up to be. Uh, and I know it flies in the face of much that's being taught today because in America, we just, it's all about we got to have our leisure. <laughs> you know what? Uh, a recently elected uh, representative before the, before the first sessions even started, she, she's come out and she said, I'm gonna, I need to take some me time. You know, it's like we got this whole mentality that it's all about the leisure. It's all about the downtime. Down uh, but we would be wise to remember there's an old saying that some people think is in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's just an old saying, but there's a lot of truth in it where it says an idle mind is the devil's workshop. You ever heard that saying? And, and, and I've, I've heard it said also idle hands are a devil's workshop. Either way you go, it's the same thing. The idea is that when you have downtime, when you're not busy, when you're not taking care of business, when you're not doing what you need to do, and you've got this idle time, this downtime, it's easy for you to get in trouble and do, make some decisions that maybe you shouldn't do. And, I, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like that's a greater temptation for some of us men. Uh, because God created us to work. You know, we get this idea. We forget that work was, was not a, part of, uh, that, uh, a result of the fall of man. 
You know, we get this idea that work is something that came as a result when sin came into the world and the curse came on the earth. But that was, you know, before the, the, the fall of man, before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, before any of that is there in Scripture, uh, God created Adam and he had him there tending the fields cultivating the flock he was taking uh, uh, not the flock but the plants he was taking care of the garden work was a blessing not a curse and for us today still work is a blessing not a curse Uh, and and now I understand you get to a point where you know like my mom she called me uh, yesterday and uh, she is uh, she is 78 years old turned 78 in August and, uh, and she was still working full time. And she called me yesterday and out of the blue and said, well, I retired today. I was like, what, what happened? You know, and, and it just caught me off guard. But, but uh, you know, you get to a point in life where you just, you, your body just can't do the same things that you used to do, that sort of thing. And I understand that. But work is, it, it, how many of you have ever known somebody that retired and, uh, and they just sat around and did nothing and it ended up destroying them? Even when you retire, to be working, to be active, to be doing something is important. That's the way God made us, and it's especially true for men. One of these days, I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach a message to us. Uh, actually, a series of messages to us guys, um, uh, just to, to to talk about the biblical role of men and what God created us to be and what it means for us. But but anyway, David he wasn't he wasn't living that way. Um, he was. Uh, uh, he, he, he forgot that bored boys can become bad boys. And, and, uh, uh, and that boredom was his enemy. He didn't recognize that. He was bored and restless. He had this pent-up energy. He didn't know what to do with it. And so early, early one evening, he, he just took a stroll out on the palace rooftop. And he's out there walking along, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing uh, on the roof of a nearby home. Now, now there's no doubt this is certainly a moment of temptation for David. I mean, what man would not be tempted by the sight of a beautiful naked woman? After all, David was only human, right? He was only human. But I want you to remember this. Temptation is not sin. Isn't that right? Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted. Yeah, that's right. It's not the temptation. It's what we do with temptation that is sin or not. David was, you know, all he was doing, he was just taking a walk in his eyes as he's walking along, come across this beautiful woman. And and so there was no sin at this point. Though he saw her and realized how attractive she, she was, he was still okay up to this point in time. The sin was in his response. You know, Satan is not called the father of lies for no reason. He indeed is the master deceiver. And you know what he does? I want you to see this. You're going to recognize this in your life. You're going to see how he does this. He lies to us on both ends of the sin. He, he, he does that. First of all, he's the one, you know, he tempts us. The Bible says that we're tempted. By the way, when temptation comes, you can read it in James. Temptation comes when when uh, uh, it's rooted in our, in our own desires, when our desires give birth. And that's the, the, the enemy uses your own desires against you to tempt you. I mean, think about it. It only makes sense because, you know, if you hate broccoli and somebody comes up to you and says, I got some broccoli for you, you're not tempted by that, are you? 
because you have no desire for it already. So it's birthed in our desires. And, and you know, David, we already know he likes women because he's got multiple wives and, and multiple concubines. And so the desire is there and the temptation comes, but he's still okay. But the enemy, he comes and he tempts us. And then, you know what he does? He wants to make you feel guilty for being tempted. You ever, you ever been there? Where you, you're, you face this temptation? And, and you, even when you say no, then later on, you, you, there's this little voice that comes and say, I can't believe you're even tempted. Why, why would you want to even do that? Well, that's, that's the voice of the enemy trying to bring condemnation. So he's lying to you there. Even though you haven't sinned, he's trying to make you feel guilty for being tempted, even though you haven't sinned at that point in time. And then, you know what, we, what he does? When we do sin, he doesn't want us to come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but, and so he'll try to keep us out of that. But, but if, the, if the Spirit's conviction finally reaches us, then what the enemy does, he was the one who tempted us in the beginning then the Holy Spirit brings conviction and we begin to, to feel uh, sad and we begin to, to say, I need to repent. And the enemy comes afterwards and, and we, then begins, begins to condemn us. So he tempts us. Then after it's done, he starts pointing a finger and saying, look at you, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. And he, and he, he lies to us. Even, even after we pray, even after we repent before God, he'll keep pounding away with that. That's why Paul wrote, in Romans 8, that's why he said it's important for us to remember. He said, there is now, there, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is still conviction of sin. There is still discipline from the Father when we do sin. But there is no condemnation when we are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation, what does that mean? I mean, that doesn't just mean an accusation. He is the accuser of the brethren. brethren but condemnation means... The, uh, okay, if you are found guilty of something and you are condemned to death, that means that is your sentence. You are guilty and you are going to pay the penalty. You're going to pay the price. And he says there is therefore now no condemnation that you're, the guilty uh, has been removed. The, the guilty sentence has been removed from you and you no longer are going to have to pay the penalty for your own sin because that's what Christ did on the cross for us. He, he took the wrath of God on himself. He took the judgment of God on himself and at the same time showed us how much the Father loves us by offering us the free gift of salvation. It's awesome. Anyway, David's response at this point in time should have been to walk away. He should have learned from the story of Joseph. Everybody remember the story of Joseph? You, you remember what happened in Potiphar's house? Somebody tell me what happened with Potiphar. That's right. David's, uh, uh, Joseph was in Potiphar's house as a slave. The master's wife thought he was a good-looking young man and said, come lie with me, which just, you know, that's just a nice, clean way of saying, you know what. And, uh, and so, uh, and, and Joseph said, I'm not going to do it, not going to do it. And finally, she cornered him one day when nobody else was in the house and said, you're going to lie with me. And Joseph said, how can I do this and sin against God and against my master? I can't do it. And he ran away, but she grabbed hold of his cloak to try to hold him back. And he ran away from the temptation. Do you think Joseph was ever tempted? 
Of course he was. He was a man. And he, was, he had a woman saying to him, I want you to have sex with me. I guarantee he was tempted, but he was not willing to give in to the temptation. And in order to avoid it, he did what Paul said later in the New Testament. And he, when Paul said, flee youthful lust, he ran away. David knows the story of Joseph. He should have learned from Joseph. But instead of doing that, that's not what he did. David's response should have been to walk away. He, he didn't need to be alone at that time. He needed a distraction. He needed to get his mind elsewhere. The, the temptation in that moment was natural. It was not wrong. But David just, he needed some rambunctious friends around him to drown out the sight of Bathsheba bathing in the moonlight. He needed some, some buddies to come up to him and say, David, come on, come with us. We're, let's get some cards. We're going we're gonna to play old maid and order pizza. You know, I, I don't know why I said old maid. I don't know. I couldn't think of a good card game at the moment. But, uh, but unfortunately, David's response is the wrong one. Instead of walking away, you know what David did? He said, who is that woman? He began to entertain the temptation. See, it seems like an innocent, innocent enough question, doesn't it? I mean, who is she? I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, I just... Uh, she's one of my subjects in all. I mean, I'm her king. I should know everybody. The problem with that idea is that how many clothed women are, is he asking about? You know, how many kids playing hide and seek on the other rooftops is he asking about? He's not interested in knowing uh, about anybody. He's not interested in knowing anything ab about the, uh, the subjects in his kingdom. And though his simple question doesn't feel like a conscious decision to us or a conscious decision to sin, the moment David sought her name, the outcome was almost completely settled already. Because now, instead of running away, instead of walking away from temptation, boy, this is a lesson for us, isn't it? In any temptation, instead of running away from it, instead of getting away from it, where he can, he can get his mind somewhere else, because that's where the battle is, you know, we talk about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not out there somewhere. Spiritual warfare is right here as in the, the battle in our mind. Uh, as, and that's why Paul says to be, re, to be renewed, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The battle is there. You know, you're not just doing spiritual warfare when you're praying for somebody that's lost out there. Every time you're faced with a temptation to do something wrong, you're in the middle of a spiritual battle right there. And it takes place here. And so that means i got to get away from this to some place where I can get my mind on something different. Well, David begins to ask. And when he asks that question, all his pent-up energy has now become his enemy. And in reply, he was told, oh, that, that's Bathsheba. That's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, that should have ended it. Should have ended it right there. But instead, the bored king sent for her. Now, the truth is, there was probably no reply that the guard could have given that would have de de deterred David from sending for her. His mind was already set. He already said, I want to know who she is. I'm you know, he's already in his mind, gone past the point of just temptation. He's already made a decision. He was told that, she was not only married, but here's what a lot of us don't realize. He was told that, that her husband was someone that was close to David. 
Because at the end of David's life, we'll get to this eventually, in 2 Samuel 23, Uriah is listed as one of David's mighty men who fought so courageously for the king. He fought with David, and David listed him as one of his mighty men. He wasn't just some soldier out there. This was a guy that David knew very well that he had fought side by side with. He was a, they, you know, you, you hear the phrase, they were a band of brothers, and, and they were in the, the trenches together. And while Uriah was in a battle where David himself should have been, the king is seducing his wife. Now sin is sin, of course. But David's adultery with Bathsheba was also the betrayal of a friend. And after David sent for Bathsheba, there's an odd, rather matter-of-fact statement in Scripture. But remember, nothing in Scripture is wasted throughout the Bible Uh, Those words and phrases that seem to add little to the story, very often they're very important to the story if you can understand it. But consider this strange verse in 2 Samuel 11.4. When she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now listen, this is the unusual phrase. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Okay, what is that all about? Let me explain this. According to Jewish law, for seven days after the end of a woman's period... Uh, she was considered unclean and could not have sex with her husband. Okay? She had to go through this week-long uh, ceremony of cleansing to get herself to where, where she would be considered clean. However, I want you to think about this. There are countless other stories of sex and illicit sex in the Bible where nothing is ever mentioned about the purification rites. So why... Is it mentioned here? How would David have even known that she was clean ceremonially? He must have asked. It is possible to get yourself into such a religious, over-spiritualized cloud that you can justify one sin by trying to satisfy another law. David must have asked Bathsheba, have you gone through the seven days of ceremonial cleansing? Now that's that's an amazing question. It's an astonishing question to ask. To ask a woman with whom you're about to commit adultery. Okay, you're about to commit adultery. Well, have you kept the laws? Are you ceremonially clean? See, David thought religiously in this moment in an effort to spiritualize something that was immoral, it was almost as if he was saying, well, if she's clean, it's not so bad. You know, Hollywood's lessons on love, they're strikingly similar, though they emphasize love, not spirituality. Uh, Hollywood says, if you're in love, then by all means, leave your husband and the kids for the new man in your life, because if you're in love, it's different. It's not the really bad kind of adultery. And they, I, they, 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 the Hollywood tells a lie all the time that everybody, you should be happy. <laughs> well, listen, well, God wants you to be happy. I want you to be happy. But, but the problem is, if you go chasing happiness outside of God's plan, 
then you're gonna, you'll, you'll achieve that and you'll begin to realize there's still something missing and you start chasing after another and you start chasing after another and you start ch- chasing after another. That's why you see these people that are, that are, that are uh, uh, chronic cheaters and they'll get into a relationship and everything's great, everything's great, and then all of a sudden it's just not the same and they begin to cheat and then they commit adultery with somebody else and get a divorce and move on to the next one. And then it's the same thing over and over and over again. Because the lie is your happiness is all important. When the, the, what God says is your character is more important even than your happiness. And God understands that if we can get the character right, if we can learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to live the way that God wants us to live in, in the love that Jesus wants us to live, if we can learn to do that, then we'll truly discover what happiness is. And it's not something that comes from someone or something out there. It's something that he does in us. Which, by the way, uh, the problem with happiness, did you know the word happiness comes from an old English word that means happenings? Which means that happiness is based on your circumstances. That's why, you know, you can't go to somebody, you know, when they've lost someone to death, you know, that they love dearly, you can't go to them and say, oh, come on, just be happy. You would never think of that, would you? If you do, please don't ever visit anybody that's lost anybody because you're just going to, you know, you're just going to drive them right over the edge somewhere. You don't do that because you realize that, that the happenings around them does not lead to happiness. That's, that's the difference between happiness and joy. Joy is deeper than happiness. It's not about, it's not about the can I be happy and grin and smiley and, and cheerful and chir- you know, chippy, uh, chipper. That's the word I was looking for, not chippy. That's a di- whole different word altogether. Chipper, you know, that's not about trying to be like that. It's, it's about understanding that even in the darkest times of my life, I have a, there's a deep abiding joy inside of me that in spite of the sadness that I'm living in in the moment, there's something in, deep inside of me that knows this is not how it's always going to be. That someday I'm going to be with my father. And one day, like earlier this year when I lost my dad, the joy that I had in my life during that sadness was that one day I will see him again because he was a man of God so that joy goes deeper than circumstances or happenings around us for David getting back to what we were talking about for David making sure Bathsheba was ceremonially clean I guess it just made it seem a little less like adultery to him and he, he silenced his conscience, he wounded his character, he sullied his reputation, and he did it with a religious question, are you purified from your uncleanness? If David was, before, was bored before that night that he saw Bathsheba bathe on the rooftop, he was soon to be cured of that. Because a short time after his affair with Uriah's wife, word came from Bathsheba, she sent a message and said, I'm pregnant and the baby's yours. Which, by the way, you know, when I was in youth ministry for so many years, we used to talk about God's way of doing things versus the world's way and the difference in the reaction. 
I used to tell the story. I said, play this scenario in your, in your mind. You and your boyfriend are messing around up in the bedroom, doing what you know you shouldn't be doing before marriage. And you hear a car pull up. You run to the window and look and you realize, oh no, mom and, mom and dad are home. And suddenly it's panic. It's fear. It's terror. And you're thinking, what do we do? And you're trying to figure out how to get out of this. And then months later, a, a few weeks later, you find out that the girl's pregnant and she has to go to her parents and say, Mom, Dad, I'm pregnant. And there's, there's no joy in that. But consider a different scenario. The same couple decides to do it God's way and they wait until they get married. Now they're up in their bedroom or wherever they are in their home, their apartment, and they're doing what husband and wife do and it's a beautiful, joyful thing. And they hear a car pull up. They go look out the window. It's mom and dad. Oh, they can wait. A few weeks later, they take a pregnancy test, and they can't wait to call mom and dad. Guess what? We're having a baby. It's the same act, but one's done God's way, and one's done in, in our human wisdom and desires. One brings joy. One brings happiness. The other brings shame. The other brings sorrow. The other brings difficulties. See, doing it God's way really matters. It really does. But here's David. He didn't do it God's way. Now, probably every other time one of his wives came to him or a concubine, if he got word, David, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a daughter. You're, you, 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 you fathered another child. You know, it'd be like, yeah, I'm a man. I did it. Not this time. David, the strategist, designed a scenario whereby he could pawn the baby off on Uriah, her husband. So he said, here's what I'll do. He said, I'll bring Uriah home from the battlefield for, for a night so that he, he, he can spend an intimate evening with his wife. And that would at least get the timing close enough that every, nobody would know, nobody would question, everybody would say, oh, Uriah, it's your baby. Well, David's plan most certainly would have worked. The problem was Uriah was a really good and decent guy, and he messed up David's plans. Uriah's moral compass must have been one of the reasons David thought so highly of this good man. But this time, however, Uriah's moral compass was an inconvenience to David, and it, was, it turned out to be death for, for Uriah. So David, he shows up, Uriah shows up, and David begins to fake like he's interested in the, in the battle. He asks about Joab, how's the war going? How's everything out there? And, you know, because he knows he can't just jump right into it, but he's going to try to set the scenario and manipulate the, the, the situation. And David gets to the real point, eventually, of bringing Uriah home. And, he, you know, you just picture this in, his, in my mind, you know, David, David's talking to Uriah and says, well, well, you know, while you're here, you may as well go home and have some much-needed time with your wife. How about you sure miss her, huh? I know she sure misses you, so, hey, you just get out of here, you old dog. You just, you just go out there and have a good night. But Uriah would have none of it. He said, my king, with all due respect, I can't do that. 
The ark is in a tent. My soldiers are out there all sleeping in tents tonight. How could I go and lie with my wife in my house? How could I go home and take a warm bath when my men are sleeping in, in, in cold mud? I could never be guilty of such an act. And he says, so, Your, Honor, uh, Your Majesty, I, I appreciate your, your kindness, but instead... I'm going to sleep outside your door tonight. I'm going to sleep on the steps and I'll be your personal bodyguard. Your eyes in integrity and loyalty, it should have touched David's heart. But the problem was he was so far gone into his sin that he couldn't appreciate the beauty of Uriah's response. So that gave David a little time. He said, okay, let me just hit the pause button here. Let me rethink the scenario. Let's start this whole process. I mean, now, he, now in that time, he could have, in that moment, he could have said, listen, I just got to do this the right way. He could have confessed. He said, Uriah, he, said, I'm I, he could have said, I'm ashamed to tell you this, but I, I was tempted. I gave in to my temptation. I did something, I, and, and I abused my power. I brought your wife in, and she's pregnant with my child. He could have confessed. He, he could have said that. He could have at least sent Uriah back to his troops, and just let the whole thing play out. But no, David actually tried again to manipulate the situation. I, I mean, surely a, a restless night uh, at the king's doorstep would get Uriah thinking that he'd rather be with his beautiful wife. So, so the next time, David, David actually even gets Uriah drunk. He gets him drunk at dinner on the second day before trying to convince him to go home to Bathsheba. But Uriah still refused to sleep more comfortably than the rest of his men. And I want you to think about this. In that moment, a drunk Uriah showed more integrity and character than a sober David. That's a sobering thought. And as he shakes Uriah's hand, he sends it back to the army and he gives him the sealed scroll, the sealed note. says, please give this to Joab and... And Uriah says, anything for you, your majesty. And Uriah, he just uh, quickly rides out of Jerusalem, uh, anxious to be alongside his comrades once again. But what he doesn't know is the note that he carries is his own death warrant. It all started out with an innocent walk on a rooftop to enjoy the sunset over Jerusalem. David never intended for any of this to happen. Not, he, never, he didn't go out there looking for a naked woman on a, on a rooftop even so, seeing her, that was not the sin. Uh, he, he, could have ended, he could have ended it in that moment. He could have tapped the brakes and turned around and gotten the guys together uh, to, for a card game. Instead, he asked who she was. And even though that was the moment that, that he decided to sin, he still could have stopped it at any time. He didn't have to sin for her. He didn't have to put on the false pretenses of being religious about the moment. He didn't have to sleep with her. He didn't have to conspire to frame Uriah for the pregnancy. He, he could have confessed his sins. He could have faced the consequences. He could have done all the things right, but he did not. And having made all these bad decisions, he now makes the worst decision of his life he ordered Joab to place Uriah at the front of the battle where the fighting was the fiercest and he said get him up there where the fighting is the fiercest and then I want you to pull all the other men back and leave him out there making sure that there is no way Uriah could survive that battle it was plain out and out murder this was the principled mercenary who refused to kill a Hebrew 
when fighting for the Philistines. This was the fugitive who, who twice could have killed Saul, but, but held firm to his belief that God would remove the man in his own way. This is the same man who now did all those things right, but now has an innocent, loyal soldier of the highest integrity killed to cover up his adultery and the resulting pregnancy. A, a multifaceted genius, a musician, a poet, a politician, a strategist, a warrior, a conqueror, a national leader. When he was good, he was very, very good. When he was bad, he was horrid. And listen, there's a couple things that I want to bring to, to close, together to close this out. The first thing is, if you would have asked David when he first became king, maybe even when he was out in the caves, whenever, any time before this, if you would have gone to David and said, David, do you think that you have it in you to commit adultery with one of your best friends and then have your best friend murdered to cover it up? I feel sure he would have said, you're crazy. There's no way I would ever do something like that. That's why the Bible says in the New Testament, it says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, if you're thinking to yourself, that can never happen to me. Maybe, maybe you've seen, you know, some news story and, uh, um, you know, I mean, from my perspective as a, as a minister of the gospel, you know, you, it, it's always heartbreaking to me when some uh, scandal breaks out and you, you find out that some famous pastor or great speaker, you know, has had an affair and it comes to light. And, and it's really easy. It's really easy to look at things like that and say, oh, I would never. Don't be so quick. The Bible says, Proverbs says, guard your heart, for out of it come the wellsprings of life. Listen, I have to be honest with myself and say, if I let my guard down, if I'm careless, if I make poor choices, yes, it could happen to me. I'm not above any temptation. You are not above any temptation, which means that's why we have to be to guard our hearts. We can't, you, you will never ever be able to say, I would never, because given the right set of circumstances and, and having your mind clouded by choices that you made, trying to cover up all kinds of different motivations, yes, you would. So the best thing is, don't let it get to that point. The best thing is, Learn from Joseph on the positive side. Learn from David on the negative side. One of them ran. The other one didn't. One of them walked with integrity. And, 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 and we look at him with, with high honor. And the other one, we look at this point in his life as, a, as one of the lowest lows of, that you can imagine. One of them don't forget this. This is something that's a little harder to deal with. One of them suffered for making the right choice. But eventually God lifted him up. 
The other one suffered, but so did his newborn son. So did Bathsheba because they lost that baby as a result of their sin. There was a lot of things in there. So the first lesson for us is don't think you're above any sin. Guard your heart. Wash your mind with the word. Remember the battles up here in our minds, which means that that's why uh, when Paul said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means that I have, to, I have to be careful what I put in because whatever I'm putting in is shaping me into its image. Which is why it's so important that I, that I, I get in the Word. and Not only that I read Scripture, but I let Scripture read me. You understand what I mean by that? I don't just read it so I can say, well, I read my chapter. But I read it to say, okay, what is this saying to me about me? What is it that needs to change inside of me? But when I, get the, when I get into the Word and I get the Word into me, then that begins to change the way I think and I begin to think the way God thinks instead of the way that I think and instead of the way the world thinks and it gives me a way to escape when the temptation comes. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is this. That we need to establish patterns that will keep us moving forward and keep us productive at all times. Don't allow yourself to be idle. Find something to do. Put your hand to it and work hard. Be about the Father's business. Don't, don't give the devil the opportunity to get his foot in the door. Don't, don't, don't allow yourself to be, and I'm not saying never take a rest, you know, you, uh, believe me, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying, uh, don't, don't, don't just sit back, don't come to church and sit on a pew and never do anything for the, for the kingdom of God. You need to be active. You need to find a ministry. You need to be doing something. You need to be pouring your life out. You need to be working because that's a, the work, I remember, is a blessing, not a curse. You need to be doing that. You need to pour yourself into the work of the gospel because this is what I know. If you are really busy building the kingdom, then you don't have time to get caught up in all the temptations that the world has to offer. Don't give yourself the time. Keep yourself busy. Keep yourself working for, the, for God. Keep yourself active in the kingdom. And let, and let the Lord begin to do the transformation in your life. Amen? A lot of lessons we can learn from, from this man, David. Both good and negative lessons. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you.